it's so great to see people in this gym again and, and to be together and to be able to see you face to face and not through a screen. Uh, so I'm so excited about that. Uh, but at the same time, the news this week has been awful. Um, so I thought about changing the sermon to talk about Ukraine today. I didn't do that. So I'll talk about it for a minute here and, and then we'll, we'll move on and I'll tell you why. So a lot of people in this room have connections to, to Ukraine. So not just sort of the, the global issue here. Um, uh, Julia White is in school in Bulgaria, which is just two countries south. Uh, John Hay has good friends who he's worked with um, in, who are in Ukraine and, and in danger. Uh, my sister, uh, her ministry, New Creation, <coughs> uh, has good friends in Moldova, uh, which is one country south. Those people have been trampled on all their lives, um, and now they're receiving refugees from Ukraine opening their arms. They don't know how to do that, <laughs> but they know that's what you do, and they know that they don't have a military, and they're not members of NATO. So if Ukraine falls, they'll likely be next. So, I don't know. The good news is that the scriptures for today are like a Swiss army knife. Like the, these sort of underpinning, underpinnings of what I'm going to talk about sort of meet you where you are. So my prayer this week has been that the Holy Spirit will meet us where we are and where each of you are individually. So, um, and thankfully, he's going to do that regardless of what I do up here. <clears throat> So this morning is the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is also Transfiguration Sunday. That's the gospel story that Kevin just read, where Jesus appears radiant like a great light alongside Moses and Elijah. We'll get there in a few minutes. I'm actually going to teach on each of the three readings from this morning against all reasonable advice. <laughs> I'm going to try to try to get to all three uh, just briefly. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can turn it to 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, and we start in verse 9. This story about Elijah is a bit strange without context because we just stumble upon the prophet hiding in a cave with the voice of the Lord asking him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then Elijah is told to go out on the mountain, and a great and strong wind tears the mountain to pieces, but the Lord isn't in the wind. Then an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. Then a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Other translations call that thin silence or a small, or, or a still small voice. And in that still small voice, the Lord asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah pleads his case again. So Elijah's having a strange day. There's been wind and an earthquake and a fire. Maybe we should look to the time leading up to this and see if we can figure out what might be going on. So we need context for this event on Mount Horeb. Elijah is clearly at his wit's end with the people of Israel, and he has good reason. Uh, the book of Kings is called Kings uh, because it covers the time in history from the end of King David's life 
uh, into the subsequent kings who would rule uh, Israel. So by this time, Israel knew that from David's line was going to come a messianic king. So with each one of these guys, they had to have been wondering, maybe this is the guy. If you've read Kings, <laughs> that's not the way it really turns out. So we start off with Solomon. Solomon's anointed king uh, as David is dying, and he does some great stuff early in his reign. Uh, he's known for great wisdom. There's the famous story of the two women who bring a baby to him, and they both claim that it's their baby, and he sort of devises this clever way to sort that out. So he's, he's known for his wisdom. He establishes great wealth and builds an incredible temple and then a beautiful palace, and Solomon blesses the Lord. Throughout all this, he's asking the Lord for guidance and for wisdom. He prays a dedication to the Lord. Things are going beautifully for Solomon early in his reign. The Lord appears to Solomon and says, I've heard your prayer, I've consecrated this house, and as long as you follow me and keep my commandments, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But the Lord also gives Solomon a warning that if he strays and follows other gods, the Lord will cut him off along with all of Israel. And he says that this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss at the sight of it. I hate to ruin the end for you, but it doesn't go great from here. Solomon turns from the Lord and takes many foreign wives, 700 to be exact, and he starts to follow their traditions and their gods. So the Lord tells Solomon, you have not kept my covenant or my statutes, and I will tear the kingdom from you. From here, the book of Kings tells the story of the rest of these kings. The kingdom is split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. By the authors telling, the next 20 kings of Israel fail in following the Lord. You pick up this cadence about each of the kings as they're described with so-and-so came to reign over Israel, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in his sin, he made Israel to sin. Over and over and over. Judah fares a bit better. They have a few kings who follow God's covenants and commands, but nonetheless, no Messiah arrives. So this is where prophets come in. God's prophets aren't fortune tellers. Their job is to listen to God and to convey that message to the people, including to the kings. This is not always well received. <laughs> there are lots of times in the Old Testament where the message that the prophet is delivering to a very powerful person is not pleasant. Just before meeting with God on Mount Horeb, Elijah has been speaking out against idolatry, and he has this big showdown with all the prophets of Baal. So at this time, uh, Ahab was the king, and his wife Jezebel had promoted the worship of this god, Baal. So Elijah said, I think there were 450 of them. Elijah said, here's how this is going to shake out. You guys build an altar, kill a bull, get everything divided up and ready, but you can't light the fire. I'm the only prophet left of the Lord God. I'll do the same thing. I'm going to prepare this altar. I'm going to get everything situated, but I won't light the fire. We're going to pray to our God, whoever gets fire wins. So these prophets of Baal are thrashing about and cutting themselves and crying out to Baal. Not a spark, nothing. Elijah starts out by dousing his with water, and he prays to God. 
Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know you, O O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Wham! Huge fire consumes the altar. Everybody falls on their face. Proclaiming that the Lord is God. So for about a line of the Bible, it looks like a big win for Elijah. Unfortunately, you continue to read to the next line. Jezebel is not excited about the way the match turned out. So she says, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. Elijah runs for 40 days, and that's when we find him in this cave. I couldn't help myself. I love telling stories, and Kings has great stories. (laughs) So I had to give you a little context. So all that to say, you can understand why Elijah's dejected. God doesn't seem pleased with his presence, though, which is the part that's a little confusing. God, I'm sure, is not pleased with what's been going on in Israel either. Mount Horeb, by the way, is, is Mount Sinai. This appears to be the same place where Moses went, received the commandments, comes off the mountain glowing because of his encounter so close to God. Elijah's trip up the hill is very different. Instead, he's twice asked, why are you here? And twice he defends himself. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. His tone is almost accusatory. I'm doing my part. Why are you fixing this? The text isn't explicit, and I didn't write it in my notes, but I can't help but wonder if Elijah thought he was God's last hope. I can see me thinking that. God doesn't seem to, uh, to share his position there. So God tells Elijah, here's how it's going to go. You're going to go appoint some new kings, and you're going to go anoint Elijah to be prophet in your place, and I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. God still has a plan forward. Do not get me wrong, Elijah is highly regarded in the biblical story. He appears next to Moses and Jesus in our gospel reading today. He is a great prophet, but he lacks the perspective of the Lord. And that, I think, was his mistake, and is frequently our mistake. We mostly consider the world from our perspective, not realizing that God's perspective is very different. We just see our little piece of the pie. God sees the whole restaurant. This is not to say that your life and experience aren't valid and important. The creator of the whole universe calls you by name. Your life has more value than you'll ever understand. I'm just saying that when we're on the side of a mountain yelling at God, which is sometimes okay, it may be helpful to keep in mind that he has a better view than we do. And even when things are difficult and we just need a win, his desire is for our eternal well-being, not just relief in the moment. So now we're going to shift over to the end of the epistle passage, because that's how you read the Bible, back and then jump forward and then move all around. So we're going to start with the end of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. So 2 Peter's way in the back of the New Testament. So it's just a few pages ahead of Revelation. 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this speaks to Elijah's type of situation. Elijah did incredible things. He predicted a drought. He raised a boy from the dead. These were all things that God was doing through Elijah. In our time, we have the Holy Spirit here with us, and we should ever seek his help and acknowledge his hand in our efforts and in our successes. So in my mind, these two concepts work in tandem with one another. Remembering that God's perspective is greater than ours and acknowledge that all good things come from God, even the good things that we do. We are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So now the beginning of the second Peter passage, and we're just going to spend a sec here. Uh, so second Peter, Peter here is sort of recollecting uh, his, uh, his experience at the Transfiguration. And before we go to Luke's account, I want to read this as a source of encouragement. So starting in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I'm encouraged by that reminder. Sometimes I get tangled up trying to overthink the Bible or analyze or make connections and forget this beautiful authenticity in the scriptures. Peter's a guy writing letters to the churches in Asia Minor about what he saw. No cleverly devised myth. We were eyewitnesses. We ourselves heard the voice. No fancy words, no complicated explanation. I was there. This is what I saw, and it changed my life. Peter's reaction in Luke's account is actually another proof of authenticity, so we'll head there next. So this is Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. You heard Kevin read it earlier. Uh, Jesus goes up on another mountain with Peter, James, and John, and something crazy happens. Jesus' appearance is altered. His clothes are a dazzling white. It's like light is emanating from him. Moses and Elijah appear there with him. They're overtaken by a cloud, and they hear God's voice say, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then only Jesus is left there with the disciples. So before we really get into what the transfiguration is about, we'll do the silly thing with Peter first. So this incredible thing is happening, and Peter pulls a Travis and just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. <laughs> This is amazing. I just want to stay in this moment. Let me set up camp. No, man. We don't need camp. In Mark's account, he said that Peter said it because they didn't know what to say because they were terrified. This part of the story does nothing to deepen the meaning of the transfiguration. It has nothing to do with it. So why is it there? It's a distraction, if anything. All these years later, here I am wandering around about it. It's there because it happened. It's like this silly, ridiculous thing. But in the three gospel passages that talk about the transfiguration, they all talk about Peter 
just being a doofus because it happened. They didn't need it for the story. And I too would have crowned on my buddies if they had asked me to write a gospel, so thankfully they didn't. All right, the transfiguration itself is an incredible moment where Jesus appears in glory and majesty alongside two forebears of our faith, Moses and Elijah. Two other guys who had their own encounters with God on a mountaintop. My great-grandfather was a bear hunter and a great outdoorsman, and he would often say that the mountains made for a good church if for no other reason than the elevation puts you closer to God. I think he must have been onto something because all this stuff keeps happening on a mountaintop. So Jesus changes appearance, is adorned in radiance and light. We've seen lots of references throughout the Bible of God and light, or Jesus as light. Earlier I mentioned Moses' face glowing from a close encounter with God, that light transferring on to Moses. Jesus is the light of the world, and in this moment, these guys are able to see actual reality. Jesus says he really is the real presence of God on earth. You ever looked at something through a microscope, or you remember the first time you did it? I think I was in the eighth grade. It was either the eighth grade or the tenth grade. And I can remember you, you show up to science class that day, and these big heavy microscopes are out on the table, and the teacher breaks out these little slides. You know, and you look at this slide, and you sort of see a little smudge on there, and you're like, oh, that, that doesn't seem too impressive. And you slide that slide under that microscope and you dial that focus in and it's like there's another world there. The lights, the light and the colors and the shapes. It, it, you're, you're looking at something that has always been there. You just need a special circumstance to see it. That's the transfiguration. They're seeing what Jesus is. They just needed a special lens to see it. This is the veil being lifted and we get a glimpse into the cosmic truth of who Jesus is. And in this moment, God gives us a more clear direction for who we see. My son, my chosen one, listen to him. This points back to Jesus' baptism, and it's one of several instances where God makes clear who Jesus is and how we should respond. So drawing together the undertone of these three texts, we acknowledge God's grand perspective, embrace the Holy Spirit's work in our world and our lives, and we seek to follow Jesus, to listen to him. Lastly, it's worth noting that we always read an account of the transfiguration on the Sunday before Lent. In the transfiguration, we're told that Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, but also that they were talking to him about the, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the transfiguration is a moment of glory and radiance and hope preceding a time of great darkness. Jesus is going to go from a bright light shining on a mountaintop to a condemned man on a cross in a short period of time. For us, this is a reminder of Jesus' divinity and majesty as we head into our own solemn season. For the next 40 days, I hope that we can take time to quiet ourselves, renew our focus on the Lord, and spend extra time in prayer and reflection. 
If you haven't in the past, I would encourage you to adopt a Lenten fast to help set this time apart in the church calendar. This self-deprivation is not trying to earn favor. It's a way to reflect on Jesus' own temptation and sacrifice in preparation for a great celebration at Easter. I hope that the points from today are helpful in your reflections through Lent. First, pondering God's vast love for his creation and his perspective in surveying all that he's made in contrast to our limited point of view. Secondly, embracing our position as being carried along by the Holy Spirit throughout our work and in our devotions. And thirdly, to seek and follow Jesus as God's chosen son and to live into our destinies as co-heirs of his eternal kingdom. In our time, we're nearly constantly surrounded by noise and distraction, and we've seen much turmoil in the previous months and days. So I would specifically encourage you to seek out opportunities for quiet time and prayer. Elijah did not hear God in the wind, earthquake, or fire. I think it might be hard for us to hear God's voice on Twitter, or in the news, or in a political conversation. Like Elijah this Lent, let's make room to hear God in the sound of a still, small voice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.